so I don't know, uh, you know, just how many of you guys loved Christmas growing up, right? Like when you're a kid, Christmas is just, it's the best thing ever, right? And like really the 26th hits and you're like, why am I still alive? Like this is the worst. Like I have to wait 364 more days to experience joy. You know what I mean? Like so just that elation that comes with the Christmas season. So I remember growing up in Louisiana, there's just nothing really to do. And so you got excited about anything, right? Uh, and so, man, the, se- you know, the seasons begin to change. It starts getting a bit cooler, a bit gloomier. The, the leaves start to fall. Now in Flagstaff, right, we have the snow that comes, which is beautiful. But in Louisiana, you start seeing the lights start going up. And I remember just like my heart just getting so elated with the season, like living in kind of this awe and wonder of, of the Christmas season. And, and then we would watch, you know, everyone has Christmas traditions. So every year, like on the 23rd, my whole family, uh, we would put on the record player and uh, play uh, the Chipmunks Christmas and Star Wars Christmas and stuff like that whilst watching the Christmas story as we fell asleep in the living room, right? Um, did anyone else, everyone seen the Christmas story? Yeah. Okay. Okay, we're going to show that next week, I think, for those who haven't. But, um, you know, so we just have these traditions, and every year the things that were, I mean, I anticipated and longed for kind of built up this, this awe and wonder of the season, right? And I think oftentimes, as I've kind of been praying and thinking through this season and, and, and what God has done really over the last kind of 13, 14 years since I became a Christian, about how much more I long and desire for my heart to, to kind of live in awe of, and wonder during this season of, of what the real reason why we celebrate is, right? Like to really kind of live in awe and wonder uh, of God incarnate, of God in the flesh. And I just wonder, like, how often do we take the time to do that? Uh, because once Thanksgiving ends, uh, Black Friday starts, and it's this, like, frenzy to consume and to purchase and to move quickly because for you students, right, you, you've got a couple weeks of school left, and you got finals, and then you're excited to go home. Uh, for a lot of us, right, with families, you've got kids, and it's just craziness, and they're excited. Uh, for a lot of you, right, you're just trying to navigate, man, am I traveling, am I staying home, all this. There's so much stuff going on this month. I think oftentimes we don't get the opportunity to slow down and truly live in awe and wonder of what this season is truly supposed to represent. And so my hope is for us today that if we get anything out of today, it's that our hearts would slow down. Uh, and that we take a moment to live in the awe and wonder that is God putting himself in a baby, right? Like, like the God of the universe putting himself in this infant uh, that had no power, no strength, could not live on his own type of thing and, and to live in that. And hopefully that's what kind of gets pulled out of today. So um, I thought of another story of when I was a kid. This wasn't during Christmas. This is just part of my life. And, and maybe some of you, you might not even remember these, um, but at McDonald's in the play places, right, which they still have, they used to have these ball pits. You guys remember the ball pits? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, and so you had the ball pits, and, and there's this one, right, that was right in Slidell, Louisiana, and you'd have to crawl through some tunnels to kind of get there. And I was still pretty young, maybe three years old at the time. And I crawl into the ball pit, and I start playing. And if you've ever been in one of those ball pits, they're absolutely disgusting. Like, they're, it's, that's why they got rid of it. I think kids were dying slowly. Like... <laughs> Like, everyone who has a disease, like, my leg is a result of being in a ball pit, okay? Um, because, like, they literally have done tests in, like, the amount of, like, fecal matter that was in those things. I'm, it's gross, I know, but that's how gross, it was just disgusting, right? And so um, I remember one time being in that, and you can see outside, because it's, like, grates, and obviously they want parents to know kids are alive in there, and so you can see through it. I remember freaking out when I was a little kid, and my dad has kind of 
uh, given more of the details to the story, but I start losing it, right? Like, I start getting really terrified because there's all these other kids, and I start kind of slowly falling underneath the balls, and I'm, like, drowning in a, in a sea of plastic balls, right? And so I begin to start screaming and yelling out, and I'm hating life, right? And I, I finally can appear up my little head, and I yell out to my dad, and I say, help me, dad. Help me, help me, help me. And I'm yelling, I'm crying. And so my dad, who is not the, the most spry individual, um, works himself through this elaborate tunnel system and then jumps into this disgusting ball pit, right? Gets himself all messy and then drags me out of there, okay? And this is the incarnation, right? Like as silly as that story is, right? Like that is what Jesus does. Like what we open up and what we start talking about today is the God of the universe, the one who controls, who is the father to us, who is the creator of us, that he actually comes through this elaborate plan and comes into the mess that this world is and pulls us out. Because I couldn't get out the pit myself, I needed him to come in. And the entire story of Advent, at its heart, is the reality that mankind, that womankind, that all of us, we could not grab ourselves by our bootstraps and work ourselves out of the pit. So God had to come down here and pull us out of it through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And so what we get here is this incredible moment to celebrate that. And then we're going to add some more flavor to it as we go. And so um, the series we're looking at is called What Child Is This? Today we, well, we focus on Son of God, next week Son of Man, the week after Son of David, and then on Christmas Eve we'll do Son of Mary. Okay? I want to open up with a text from John 1, uh, 43 and 49, uh, through 49 rather. So if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and open up there. If you don't, uh, you can just follow along on the screen and then, uh, and then we'll get into it. So John 1, 43 through 49, says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So let's just clear something up on the front end. That when we hear, or when we read Son of God, if you're opening up your Bible and you're reading through or someone's talking about this term, Son of God, what they're saying is, He's God. Okay? And, he, and here's why we know this. 2 Samuel 12 through 14, Old Testament prophecy uh, that kind of has like a double meaning to it. And so let me, let me read this to you. 2 Samuel, Samuel, 12, uh, 2 Samuel 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now when 2 Samuel's first being written, this is initially talking about King Solomon from the Old Testament. That like Solomon is going to be David's son, that his, that his like kingship is going to move forward. But we know certainly, right, that Solomon's king uh, reign as king had an end, right? So what we have here is Jesus fulfilling what Solomon could not. He's the true and greater Solomon, that uh, his kingdom does reign forever. 
that, that God would look to him and be father, as we see Jesus exclaiming throughout the New Testament, calling God the Father, Father. And so again, we see that in 6 Samuel. Then again, in Luke 1, 32 and 33, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so here's what's happening. When Nathaniel sees Jesus coming and approaching him and Jesus says, man, like, who do you think I am? Like, who am I? And then he says, man, you, you're, you're God. So when, when he uses, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, he's saying, you are the long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament has told us to be prepared for. You are God in the flesh. So Nathaniel in this moment is exclaiming, right, like, you're God, like we are in the presence of God right now. Okay? And so what I want to do again for us today is maybe put us in his shoes a little bit. Because for the, the first century Jew, to be able to have this type of interaction with the Messiah, with God incarnate, would have been spectacular. Because Nathaniel, like many of his Jewish brothers and sisters, would have studied, would have known, would have memorized much of the Old Testament scriptures, specifically prophecy about the Messiah that was to come. For him to be standing now in front of that very Messiah would have been a spectacular moment for him that I think sometimes as Gentiles, as non-Jews, 2,000 years later, we miss. So Jesus is this great guy, we love him, but man, to, to really uh, to enter into what did it mean that this guy came and was now there officially in the flesh to be about his redemptive work. And so we're going to look uh, at first, uh, sorry, at Colossians chapter 1 as kind of our, our main text to talk through the majesty of God. Now, before we, if you want to turn to that text, you can, and as we're getting there in Colossians 1, let me just tell you this. How many people have been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. Now, how many people have been to the Grand Canyon and you said, you know what, I just need to see it and then I'll go? Be honest. Okay, a handful of you. Like, just to say I saw it. There it is. It's just a whole big deal. Okay. I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you on that and say you wasted your time on the drive. Um, because there's something about the Grand Canyon that, that the longer you sit before it, the greater awe and wonder you begin to have. Okay. Uh, the, the, the more you kind of, kind of sit down, maybe not on the edge, you know, but close to it, depending on, on how much of a daredevil you are, uh, that the more you just gaze and look left and look right, and the sun kind of as it, over time, as it casts different shadows and different light upon every aspect and layer of rock, like you just begin to, to experience this deeper level of awe. I, I remember the first time that I got to see the Taj Mahal in India, and so um, there's, this, there's this little like I don't even know how to explain it, but it's this, this four-way archway building thing, right? That when you go in, you park, and then you enter into this, you pay your fee. Uh, and then the way it was built was really as the sun shines down on this building, um, it creates kind of this, this wall where, like, you literally can't see out of this archway. It's, it's just light. Like, you can't see anything else until you move out of the archway and into the courtyard can you actually begin to see outside of it. And so um, you come through it, and I remember walking through and getting to the other side of the arch, um, and all of a sudden, the Taj Mahal kind of just, just pops into view, you know. And, and I remember just kind of having this breathtaking moment to, to just be like, wow, like, where this thing is magnificent in its size. Like, you've seen pictures, but not until you're actually in front of it. When you take intentional time to gaze upon it, do you continue to see its beauty? Last example is, man, sometimes, uh, so when my wife and I, when Verity and I go to dinner, um, she, and she'd admit this, so I think it's okay, I share it, 
but she will get distracted. And so she'll start, like, uh, making her straw into different shapes or, like, literally take her straw wrapper and create some elaborate, beautiful thing on the table because that's just the way her mind works. And when she's doing that, I can't really converse with her because she's just in another creative world that I can't understand, right? Um, but in those moments, there's some of my favorite moments when we're on a date night is because I literally just stare at my wife for like five minutes. And, and no joke, the, the longer I stare at my wife in this moment, the deeper I fall in love with her. Because there's just something that is like in a glance, it's like, yeah, you know what? She's, she's beautiful and I love her. But man, when you, when you just take that time intentionally to gaze upon the one whom your soul loves, right? Like it just, it begins to kind of pull you deeper. Okay, uh, And so I give you those three examples to say, like, I know some of this stuff, it's not going to be all that new. Like, you're going to be like, yeah, I, I know he's all-powerful. Like, great. But I want us to try and sit and rest in it this morning, to, to really gaze upon it over and over and stare upon the beauty of God, that it would sink deeper in our hearts who he is, and then, and then we'll land with the story of Christmas. And so Colossians 1, 15 through 23 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so in verse 15, what you get is initially is the identity of this Christ figure, of Jesus. Uh, so he has two identifiers there. One, that he's the perfect embodied image of God. And second, he's the firstborn of creation, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. But both of us, the perfect embodied image of God. That when we're trying to say, man, like, I want to know God. God seems so distant. God seems so far. I, how could I possibly? We can't talk about God. You can't quantify. You can't qualify God. We've never seen him. You have seen him because you've seen Jesus. And Jesus says that to himself. He's like, you want to see the Father? Look at me, Right? Because I am the Father, because God, Jesus is God. And so this, this moment here is very important for us to slow down and think through, okay, when we celebrate Jesus, when we celebrate that he came to this world, we have to remember that this is God in the flesh. To try and do our best to be Nathaniel in that moment, to exclaim, like, you're God, like, you're God in the flesh, like, why are you here? Like, why would you do this to yourself? But God does that. God comes down into this world, and he resides here, and he lives here, and he still does that to, his, to this day through his spirit. Okay. And then in verse 16 through 19, we get what uh, oftentimes kind of in, in literature is called an inclusio, right? So it's bookended ideas uh, that on, then everything on the inside support that idea, support this idea of Jesus as, as king and sovereign lord over the universe. And so it's going to study and give us all the traits and attributes thereof. And so let's look at a handful of those. In verse 16, this is who Jesus is. Verse 16 shows his omnipotence, his power, right? that he created the entire world, okay? 
Like, and again, this right, not super new. Like, okay, yeah, God created. But just think about this for a moment. This man, Jesus, that stood before these people, that now his spirit resides in those that love him. That, that Christ, that Messiah, is the one that in the very beginning, right, like literally spoke words, and those words turned into planets. That spoke words, and those turned into bodies, into life, into plants, into everything we know and have learned about in the history of the world. God spoke with his mouth into existence, and now he came as a human, okay? And he rests here, and he resided here, okay? All-powerful, omnipotent, omnipotent, okay? He is all-powerful. Um, you think about him as a child, and this was interesting to think through because, and Anthony's going to preach next week kind of on Son of Man, so I don't want to step too much on his humanity, but you have to remember, like, he was a kid. Like, he, he, not just a baby born in a manger, but he grew up, right? So he had to go through adolescence. He had to wrestle his, like, him and James all, probably always wrestling and kind of bickering, but Jesus was always right because he's Jesus, which would just be frustrating. Just think about, like, if you have siblings, like, you're never right. Like, that would be awful. Or think about this, like poor James, like he would be like, uh, Mary would come in time for school. James would say, oh, I'm sick, mom, you know? And Jesus would be like, that's how I got it, and then healed him, right? And so poor James had to go to school. I mean, you just like, like every time, like James could never get out of it, right? James, if they got into an argument, Jesus is like, I literally made you. Like I created you. You're welcome. You know what I mean? Like you're going you're gonna to come off of me. I made you, dude. Like what that, what that must have been like, because he's God in the flesh. He's not just some guy. I think we can just minimize Christ to just this awesome dude, and he did this amazing thing. He's God in the flesh, all-powerful. The one who spoke the world into existence that gives you even to this day breath and life came to this world. Okay, All-powerful. Verse 17. Uh, sorry, again, no, verse 16. He's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. Okay? Um, he's the source of knowledge, wisdom, insight, and counsel. Okay? The source of all those things. So oftentimes, you know, we think of all the people in our lives that we're like, man, well, that person's really smart. I'll, I'll really listen to what they have to say. Uh, even now, when, when there become these issues of like, well, you know, that, that would be kind of contradictory to God, if you will. Like, I don't know, but a real, I mean, this person's really brilliant, and they said this, and this kind of, this affects me this way. Honestly, like just to take a moment, you know, but God made that person. God made that mind. And, I, and one of the most beautiful things that I, that I think is, is important for us to realize is God made the minds of the people that are in this world that try and discredit him. Like that, that just baffles me. Like there's people that, that literally today will try and write books, do research papers, and show up in debates and interviews that are trying to tear down, disprove this God, and God made their mind. He made their voice. He made their lips. He made their body. He created them, and he did not change anything. He allows them to live in them. That's, that's amazing to me. Because this Jesus that came to the world, this baby, this tiny infant that we celebrate in this season, was all-knowing, all-powerful. He, he had everything underneath his feet in a little baby form, okay? Um, verse 17, he's omnipresent, okay? Uh, that he is everywhere and he's outside of time, that he was there in the beginning and he's here now, that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere and he's everywhere all the time, okay? Um, how many people remember the show Saved by the Bell? Come on, let's get some interaction here. 
okay? Um, it's a show from my childhood, Zach Morris. Good show. There you go, Maddie. Good show. Yeah. Um, in that show, there was this moment, Maddie, maybe you remember, where Zach uh, would do these timeouts. You guys remember the Zach Morris timeout? No, some of you? So what would happen is be stuff would be going on in the scene, and Zach would want to say something specifically just to the camera, right? Like to talk to the audience that was watching the show. And so stuff would be happening behind him, and then, and then Zach would want to talk. And so Zach would go, time out, and then everyone would freeze, right? And people were terrible. In fact, that's the AC would be like back there, and he's moving, <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, but, but still, like the idea was time had stopped, and time was frozen except for Zach Morris, right? Like he was the only one that was still cognitively like present in the moment, communicating with the audience and sharing some details about what was really going on, okay? Um, in a sense, right, because the omnipresence of God is a difficult thing for us to quantify and to understand because we're so not that, right? Like if you're one of the characters in that TV show and you kind of step into what's happening, there, in A.C. Slater's mind in that time, right, nothing is happening because time has stopped, and the only thing that is truly existing, the only person that is cognitively aware is Zach Morris. He's one person, and he can manipulate and do and move and change and do whatever he would like in that time, and no one would be any of the wiser because they are all in time. He's outside of it. And so he sees things, he experiences things, and he engages in a realm we cannot ever understand. That right now, if I, were to, if I had a watch, if I were to hit a button, and that would freeze time right now, and I was the only one that was able to operate in that, you guys would all be frozen. Like, you're not thinking unless there's time. Like, we only understand life because time passes and things happen within the construct that is time. God is outside of that. God exists. He moves, he breathes, he affects, he authors, and he's been doing it since the beginning of time. This is who God is. That again, this little baby that we worship, right, that, that, that wise men showed up to praise and to bring gifts, like this baby was God in the flesh that existed omnipresently outside of time until he intentionally puts himself in the restriction that is our world. Right, that he would force himself into this place, leaving behind these things. Okay. Amazing. Now, verse 18, he is preeminent. Right? When, so when it says he is the head, he's the beginning, the first point, that in everything he might be preeminent, that he is first, he is of greatest importance, is what preeminence means. Right? That, he, that he is of the greatest importance of anything in this world, it's Jesus. He's the number one. You cannot top him. So there's a handful of things about this. I want you to think of the best person you know. Like just the, like right now, this is honestly just for a second. Think of the best person you know. They're just, I mean, I love them. I want to be around them. They're just so kind. Insert whatever positive adjectives that you could think of. Think of the best person you know. And and then think about they are absolute rubbish in comparison to Christ. Like they're, they're not nice, they're not kind, they're not loving, they don't care about you that much in comparison to God. In comparison to Christ, who is preeminent. He is literally better than anything you can think of in that category. Think of the best food you know, okay? The thing where you're like, man, if I could only eat one food for the rest of my life, it would be this. How many people be sushi? Just me, all right. You guys are terrible. If you could only eat one thing, like what would that food be? 
America. He is more delightful than one bite of whatever you can think of, right? That, that in every aspect of life, he is better than. Like he's better than anything this world has to offer. Think, think of the best place you've ever been. Right? Just for a moment, right? Think of it, the best place you've ever traveled to, you've ever been, what the scenery, what the environment like. He's more beautiful than that. Right? Think of the best hope that you desire right now. Like the thing that, like, man, if, if I could just, and we kind of talked about this last week, but if, if I could only have this, this is my hope. If I could just whatever, right? whatever hope that may be, his hope is more fulfilling. That we could go on and on and on this morning in every single category. The preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of this baby means he's better than whatever you got. And he's better than whatever this world can offer. He's better than whatever you can conjure up. He's just better than all of it. This tiny infant child that we celebrate. And then verse 19, he's all of God. I love this verse. That literally the fullness of God was pleased to place himself into an infant child. Don't you, th- again, like, and trying, again, this is not maybe new for all, but just to think about a moment, about this moment where, where God, the one who spoke, who created the world, who did all things that's better than anything this world has to offer, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, the whole deal, all powerful, all knowing, outside of time, that God chose to put himself into some cells that turned into life, that life that grew inside the womb of Mary, that was born into a culture that wanted to kill him, that was not born into this, like he wasn't born at the Ritz, right? Okay, because no room at the inn, right? Probably because it's Christmas. Sorry. (laughs) You guys are a little slow on that one. Um, He puts himself in the most vulnerable possible position in this world. So he doesn't just come down from his heavenly kingly throne into this world and then say, well, you know what, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to take up this position of power and take up this position of might and of strength and I'm going to live in this great kingdom and I'm going to put myself in the temple and I'm going to have people that right, rightfully should be kind of my servants. He doesn't do any of that. No, no, he puts himself into the single most vulnerable being we could think of and it's an infant child born in a barn with other animals. This, this is God, okay? This is God of the universe who created babies, who created the idea of babies, and he puts himself into one. All the power in the world, but as an infant, unable to attain or to perform it, right? All, all, living outside of time, but now putting himself into a time he cannot even manipulate because he's an infant. It's baffling to me, and, and it can only communicate a handful of things. And the biggest thing I think it communicates is what we'll read here in the next verse. Verse 20. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I think the last attribute we see here is that he's good. Because here's the reality. If you were to meet a person, this person can't exist, but let's just for for argument's sake, right? If you could meet a person that was all-powerful, that was all-knowing, 
that was everywhere at once, okay, that were all these things, but they were not good, you need to run quickly from that person. Jesus's goodness, God's goodness is imperative. Because if you just have someone who's not good, that has this at their beck and call, all the power of the world, that is a terrifying and scary ordeal. But Jesus is not that. Jesus is good, and he's gracious, and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's merciful. And he had a mission. And he chose to live out that mission by placing the fullness of himself into a vulnerable, tiny infant, born in an, again in an age of people who would want to kill him. Okay. He does all of this in pursuit of that which was lost, namely his children, us. He's here to restore all of creation, all of the world, everything broken. As it says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I love to read, it says that everything sad will be undone in the new heaven and the new earth. So he has this, this mission of restoration on his mind and on his heart. And he is good and he is faithful. And he's humble. And he comes in such a way as to present that to the world and do the thing he knew we could never do. John Piper has a quote. He says this, the greater the title son of God became in Jesus' life, the more it actually carried him to his death. Don't you love that, man? Like, the more you go through the gospel stories, the more that Jesus and people start realizing, like, man, people are really thinking this guy's God in the flesh. Well, we better take him out. Very interesting. God constantly, again, subverting what we think should happen in any given story and to do it the way it had to be done in ways that we could never do it ourselves. So um, let's read the story as we wrap up. I want to read the, the account of his birth. And again, as you read this, it's, it's not just like this another celebration of a friend's baby that was born, although that's very exciting. Jess and Anthony are like hopefully sooner than four, 12, 13 days away or 12 days away, uh, but, but, but due date rise, 12 days away, and we're really excited. We're going to celebrate uh, this baby, and it's going to be amazing, and it's going to be awesome, okay? But as we read this story and this tale, this is true history of the birth of God into this world. And I want us to think all the fullness put into this moment. I've compiled between Matthew and Luke the two birth accounts into this short reading. And so let's read together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
So when, when you, this season, families, as you're reading maybe the account of the birth of Christ to your kids, try and slow down for a little bit. And think of the story that you're reading is the birth of God in this world. A God that is good and righteous, that is all-powerful, all-knowing. It's all of these things placed inside an infant baby. For me, the more I reflected and gazed upon this reality as we were prepping for this series, I've been spending time thinking through Advent, I've been trying to share and invest in Finley and even to James as a little four-month-old just listening to whatever I have to say. Um, the more time I've spent reflecting, gazing, staring, reading the story over and over, studying the attributes of God, gazing upon his goodness, upon his beauty, the more my heart fell in love with him. And I pray, man, if anything, over the next four weeks, whether you're here with us on Sundays or you're headed home somewhere else, that during this season, the Holy Spirit would cause the worship and renown of his name to be so heavy in our hearts, to bring about redemption and restoration of our own souls and our own lives and those around us, that we would live in such a way, in such a responsive glow to the majesty of God and of Christ come to this earth, that even the people around us would be infected by that. It's such a magnificent reality. The story that we get to sing about as we sing Christmas songs and carols, that we sing the song, What Child Is This? I mean, this child is God. It's a crazy thought. And so even as we now move to a time of response, and I pray that our hearts would just dwell on that. It's nothing all that, you know, new, nothing all that uh, eye-opening or brand new information. It's just the same amazing information that we need to spend the rest of our lives celebrating and reflecting on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, you, you didn't just like come once and then, and then just leave. Holy Spirit, you are here with us today. That God, although you do not reside in the flesh here in this room, that your spirit is with us. That all the power, all the fullness of you is poured into and is you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence and we pray that you would do work in our hearts. God, that in the places where I know myself, God, I, I just kind of get presumptive upon your glory and your grandeur. Um, God, I get into a place of just, oh, of course. God, I long that you um, would constantly reveal yourself more and more. That for everyone in this room, that we would find the time, that we'd make the time necessary to spend time gazing upon your goodness. That we would not let anything else come in between that, but truly realize that falling in deeper love with you, understanding you, following you, understanding your goodness and your love and the gospel story, God, is the best possible thing for our souls and for our hearts and for our minds and for our lives. And so, Lord, let that be true then in our actions, that, God, we would take, man, just these moments intentionally to gaze upon you. I pray that you would be here in power and in spirit as we sing that God, our hearts would be so inclined to celebrate you all the more and experience the goodness and the presence and the change, God, that you wish to bring. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.